Already a good day to be with God's people, with you guys. Um, if you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Jonah, chapter 1. That's where we're going to be starting in just a minute. Um, we are certainly glad that you're here. We've prayed for this gathering. And if you're new in this space or relatively new and you haven't yet given us your information, we would love for you to do that. There's this card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out, drop it in the give boxes to the right and left of the doors on your way out, and we will contact you in a respectful way. Um, also, there's a way in which to serve there. And this week, if uh, you're new in this space, this is a great day to be new because we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Jonah. And we're going to be in this book for five weeks, and I'm really genuinely excited about the potential of what God would have to say to us about himself, about how he works in the world, and how we might respond to him. Most of us know the story of Jonah, at least somewhat familiar with the story. Even people who've never read the scriptures, they know about the story of Jonah. It's like one of the things that people generally have a beef with in God's word, that there's some story where there's a human who gets swallowed up by a whale. And, and most of the time we think of Jonah as this big fish story. And I come from a family with lots of big fish stories. In fact, my dad is an avid fisherman. My son is a fisherman. And this week, I got sent this picture of my son holding a bass up that looked like it was 12, 13 pounds. It was huge. But when you look at the picture with like further inspection, one of my dad's coaching uh, towards me every time that I go fishing, if he snaps a picture, one of the things he always says you've got to do is you've got to hold the fish up closer to the lens, right? You hold your, you hold your body way out here so that the fish looks huge and you look small. And here's the principle. Whatever is closest to the camera is going to look the largest in the picture, Right? And so as we look at the, the Bible, the same thing is true. Whatever we hold up closest to the lens is going to look the biggest in the picture. And so today, rather than putting ourselves first in the story and trying to find how we might be in the story of Jonah, or maybe how Jonah might be the primary character, or even how the fish might be the primary character, what I want for us to see is that God himself, his mercy, his pursuit of this rebellious prophet and a rebellious people is the primary character in the story. He's the one that we're looking at. And so I want us to see, God, how are you showing us what you're like, how you work, who you are in the context of this story of Jonah? It is one of the most popular stories in the Bible. And I'll hope that before we begin, that we'd see it's not about the fish. It's not even about Jonah, and it's, uh, it's about our God. It's about his mercy. It's about him going to great lengths to demonstrate his character and his glory in history and in nature and with his people. And so my first hope is that when we complete this sermon series in the book of Jonah, that we'd walk away saying that our God is great. And then my second story, my second hope is that whatever the story of our life is right now, that we'd be able to see more clearly what God is accomplishing for his purpose and for his glory with whatever your circumstances are right now. Whatever you're walking through, he created you for himself and for his purposes to enjoy his presence and his glory, to know him, to walk with him and to accomplish things that he alone could dream up for your life. And so today and the weeks following, let's look for God in the story, okay? I think as we explore who God is in this, this text and what he's doing, I think you'll see this really good news that our God is a God who pursues rebellious prophets. <laughs> he pursues rebels. He pursues rebellious people. And he calls them to himself. And so with that in mind, let's read God's word 
and let's read it as if we're hearing from God about himself. Would you start in chapter 1, verse 1? We're going to read the entire chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story of your mercy in your word. I pray that as we bring ourselves to the table of your word, that you would speak to us. That you'd confront ways in which we might ignore your call or ignore your presence or flee from your presence. Father, I pray that those that are in need of confrontation, that your word would do that. For those that are in need of comfort, that you would do that through your word. That In all of the words that I speak today, that you would be exalted and that our hearts would respond with obedience and joy, God. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I want to, before we get into the narrative of this first chapter, give you kind of some overview, some big ideas about what's going on in this entire book. First, some time and context for what's happening. The book of Jonah, a little context, it's happening. We don't know exactly the year or date, but we know that Jonah was a prophet that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, and we don't know exactly when it was written, but it had to be close to the reign of Jeroboam II. This king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but he did one thing, and that, that was good, and he restored some of the land that belonged to Israel. 
Um, and it wasn't because of his goodness that Jonah got to declare some good things about him, but God gave Jonah this message of grace that these borders would be restored, and it happened. So he was generally a good news prophet. Incredibly gracious move of God to allow during a time of a king who was evil in the sight of God. And so Jonah is likely known among his people as this good news prophet. He was someone that they probably liked and knew. And part of Jonah's reluctance that we learn about later in chapter four of the book is that he doesn't want God to be gracious to the people that don't belong to his people. He doesn't want God to be gracious to the Ninevites, his enemies, his natural enemies. And now this prophet who's brought good news in the past that the the borders would be restored is now um, bringing news or supposed to bring news to this country that was likely a great enemy to God's people. Most people believe that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And so at this point, this great city, three days journey around that we're going to hear later about, it has 120,000 people, lots of cattle, which is going to come up a couple of times. Some reason this is important to to God. Um, He's supposed to bring a message of God's judgment in order for them to repent and receive God's grace. Now, there could have been some element, not only of frustration that this message of grace to his enemies was happening, it also could have been for fear of what would happen to them. This group of people were known as a violent group of people. In Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, it says that this was a bloody city. It says this, Woe to the bloody city full of lies and plunder, no end of the prey. And so perhaps the worst part of Jonah's commission was that Assyria was eventually going to be used to punish God's people. So maybe he knows that, maybe he doesn't. Either way, Jonah is not excited about this commission to a group of people that he does not like. There's natural enemies. It's a dangerous place to go declare things, and he doesn't want to do it. So maybe you're wondering how in the world does Jonah tell the story of being in a fish? We don't know exactly how it happened, but most likely Jonah has told the story later in his life. And he's telling the story to, to reflect on what has happened to him and how God moved in spite of his own rebellion. Uh, Another distinction about this book is that it's different from all the other minor prophets because rather than being about the message of the prophet, which is literally eight words, okay? (laughs) Like, go repent. It's more about the prophet's struggle to follow God, his wrestling with God's purpose and presence in his life, and the places where the main character is, it's, it's not like he's some hero of the story. In fact, he's kind of like this anti-hero. He's not a villain. He's not a hero. He's like reading the diary of a wimpy prophet, okay? He's not the guy that you want to emulate. In fact, it's quite humorous throughout the story. You hear all these stories of his rebellion, and you've got to laugh at the calamity of it all. He's kind of like Michael Scott or Leslie Nope. You look at him and say, that's not how you want to behave, okay? That's not it. And one of the things that my kids regularly ask me about is stories from my childhood. They ask me to tell them stories about what happened to me. And and some of their favorite stories are when I get into trouble or get caught in trouble. And they love that. They love those stories. Lots of stories that I have like that. And Jonah is a little bit like that. Um, One of the things that I've noticed, though, is that my kids, uh, they, they love these stories because they can relate to them. And one of the ways that we can look at the book of Jonah and just ask God, what are you saying to me, is to look at his life and say, in the satire, in the humor of this anti-hero, 
How am I similar when God calls me? There's a few themes that are going on. That was the the context and and what's happening in the time period. Now, I want to go through these three themes before we get into chapter one. First, God's power, man's futility, and God's mercy. You're going to see these throughout, okay? His control over the natural world, man's futility in trying to get away from God's control, and then God's mercy and all of it. In other words, this first part, God is sovereign. He controls the natural world. In Hebrews chapter one, it says that he holds the universe by the word of his power. He's holding everything together. So there's not one circumstance. There's not one uh, molecular cell that's out of his control. There's not one molecule that he's not declaring that's mine. I own it. It's his world. And so in this book, in all the ways that Jonah runs from him, we see God's control over the natural world. In chapter one, there's a providential storm that brews. Then the falling of the lot on Jonah with him casting lots. The immediate calming of the storm when Jonah falls into the waters. Um, the divinely appointed fish and then the divinely appointed vine. The divinely appointed vomiting of the fish. In fact, the fish obeys quicker than Jonah. All of these things, God controls the natural world world. Second theme in Jonah is man's futility. Look, in contrast to God's sovereignty, you've got Jonah trying to do everything he can to control his story. The rebellion of man can't thwart the plans of God, and you're going to see that over and over and over. And then last, you're going to see God's mysterious mercy, his compassion first towards this prophet He could have easily raised up another prophet. You ever think about that? He could have easily brought some other messenger to to this city, but no, he was dead set on his plan with Jonah. He could have easily started over with this city, but he didn't. He sees it towards a rebellious world. God loved the people that were other than his people. (laughs) He loved this city. He had compassion and pity on them and on their cattle, whatever that means. He did not want them to be destroyed. He wanted to preserve them. He loved the people that were evil outside of his covenant people. And so with those themes in mind, now um, 10 minutes into the sermon, we're going to get to the scripture, okay? Chapter one, there's three things we're going to see in this book uh, and in this particular passage. We're going to see God's call. Jonah's rebellion, and then God's pursuit of the prophet. Look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God's call to Jonah is the first thing I want us to observe, and I want us to see a few things. Number one, God sees Nineveh. He sees their evil. It's not hidden from him. God sees their floundering. He sees their violence. And God's call typically begins when he shows us something that he already sees. He sees our sin and he takes it seriously. He's a God who's taking notice of the world. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight. There's absolutely nothing that you can lie to God about because he knows everything. He sees it. And here's Jonah. He's settled, happy, wondering what God wants him to say that's really good news. And God says, I want you to go to your enemies and take them this message. God speaks to him. 
So the second thing about God's call is he doesn't just see it. He's actively working in it. He's not removed from creation. He's holding it together, yes, and he's involved with creation. He's involved with what's going on on this earth. He's not separated and removed. God is actively doing something, and he wants Jonah to be part of what he's doing over here. He's at work today and then, and both in you and me and in this story, God is ultimately the one who's at work and he's inviting Jonah to be part of what he's going to do in this other place. The third thing about God's call is he speaks to Jonah. He goes to Jonah and says, I want you to declare these words of warning to this group of people. Here to a prophet, then to a people. He's making himself known through creation. God is not just involved and seeing things. He's revealing who he is and how he works. That's how God works right now. We don't have to wonder if God is speaking because he already has. He's given us his word. He's given us Christ in the flesh. He's given us his words in the words of men in order that we might know him and see what he's seeing in the world around us. He wants us to see what he sees. He's inviting us to know what he's doing, to be involved with where he's working. He's given us through his word, his perspective, his work, and his words over and over and over again. And that's what the call of God looks like. It looks like him revealing to us something about his perspective that maybe we wouldn't have noticed. And then he shows us how he's working in it. And he invites us not only to hear his words, but to speak them into the world. And so many times, God is inviting us to join him in his work. And it looks so similar to the life of Jonah. He begins to show us something that he sees. And then he reveals what he's doing and how he's engaged in it. And he invites us to be part of it, to truly apply his grace to a situation. And so God's call comes to Jonah. He tells him, arise, go to Nineveh. I see their evil. I pity them. I want you to bring my words to them. And now, how does Jonah respond? Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Next, I want us to look at Jonah's rebellion for a moment. You guys ever seen this? You're sitting in a park with your kids uh, and, and there's somebody who says it's time to go. Some mom that tells their kid it's time to go and then immediately that kid makes a beeline the opposite direction of where their mom's at. Some of you know this story very familiar, but I'm going to tell you, we've seen this played out over and over. I can... Today, you probably will see it if you just pay attention. Someone's going to say it's time to go and the kid is going to run the opposite way. I'll tell you what's really interesting though. Um, When my kids see another kid doing that, you can see the wheels spinning in their head. They're like, wait a minute. Okay, that's what I look like. That's what I look like. Interesting. That's really interesting. And you just ponder it for a moment. And when we look at Jonah's rebellion, I hope that the same kind of pondering happens for us. That we're like, hey, I'm familiar with this kind of running. (laughs) What does it look like? Jonah is this further lesson on what not to do. Again, the anti-hero. He first rejects God's command. Jonah arose and goes the opposite direction. He fled from what God wanted for his life. And he didn't just flee from God's desires for him and purpose for him. It says he flees from God's 
presence. And, and before I move on with that, here's what I want you to see. There's always going to be a ship. There's always going to be some path in the opposite direction. How many know that's true? That suddenly when you're looking and God's saying, go this way, it might seem like, oh, there's this opportunity over here for me to go this opposite direction. I wonder if, if Jonah might even be pondering in his heart, you know, this seems really great. Look, it just happens that there's this ship right here and maybe there's a message in the opposite direction and he goes and pays the fee. He's actively pursuing the opposite direction and he's not just rejecting God's purpose. It says that he's fleeing from what? God's presence. He's looking for a way to avoid God's presence. He rejects his commands. He rejects his purposes and then he rejects his presence. And later it says that he told the sailors that he was fleeing God's presence. Again, three times it describes what Jonah's doing, running not only from the task or the cost, but from God himself. And there's a few things that we can see in his running. Number one, you can't get away from God's presence. There's absolutely nowhere that you're going to go where God, you can avoid his presence. You can deny something. You can ignore that something's true. You can avoid something's true. But you cannot change the reality that is true. And the same is true of God. God's existence is like that. There is absolutely nowhere that you can go. There's a Puritan prayer that says that I'm like a bird before a man before you, Lord. Isn't it like that sometimes? with our attention span, <laughs> with all the potential distractions. So I want to ask before I move on, why would we flee from God's presence? Why would that be something our hearts or our flesh would chase after? Most of the time, the most common things that I hear about negligence towards God's word or towards time with him in prayer is that people are busy or they're distracted or they have a hard time settling their minds. Listen, I can relate to all of those times, all those things, but sometimes I wonder if the real problem is just a reluctance to be with God himself. I just want to ask that. I wonder that about myself. Maybe it's not that I'm busy. Maybe it's not that I'm really distracted. Maybe we're just reluctant to be with God himself. And so I asked the second question, why would we flee from God's presence? Well, I have a few reasons that I could personally testify about and a few reasons that I could say from God's word. When you're with God, it eliminates all sense of control. So for those of you who really like control, you like security and you like the plan, being with God just throws that out the window because he is ultimate. It eliminates that illusion. It also illuminates our sin. It calls you to areas of sacrifice. Jonah was running to avoid God's command. There's so many reasons that we would avoid God's presence because we know actually what he wants us to do and we'd rather not hear it. Maybe we know what we, he doesn't want us to do and we'd rather not hear it. And we avoid his presence. Look, if you're trusting in your own control, your own power, your own righteousness, or you're trying to justify yourself before him, that you really are okay, that you're all right, that the people are worse than you and you're doing good. You will always avoid God's presence. 
But when you know God as Savior, and you realize that all of your life belongs to Him, that understanding and the experience of His presence can be more than comforting. It can be the ultimate comfort. Sometimes His presence is a comfort to us, and sometimes His presence takes away our comforts. And if you're clinging to anything other than Christ Himself, God's presence will reveal that. In his book, Reappearing Church, Mark Sayers says this about our reluctance or avoidance of God's presence. He says this, to the contrite of heart, it's going to be on the screen, the humble, the meek in spirit, God's presence is received as waves of love. Yet for the proud, the rebellious, the autonomous, the individuals and systems that wish to continue Adam and Eve's rebellion, to reach for progress without his presence. For such people and systems, those same waves of love that are God's presence are experienced as God's judgment. In other words, God's presence can be a comfort to the humble, but it can be really uncomfortable for people that are proud. It can be really, really uncomfortable. It can be one of those two things. And for Jonah, he knows that God's presence would confront him He's inviting him into things that he does not want for himself. And so, if you are running from God today, I want you to evaluate, how do I feel about God's presence in this space with other believers when I'm alone with him in prayer, in his word? How do I experience his presence? Am I like a bird before a man, fleeing? Regardless of the reason, with the psalmist, I hope that we would get to this point where we say, and what it says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence or ascend to heaven? You're there if I make my bed in Sheol. You're there if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So ultimately, wherever we're at, You cannot forever avoid God's presence. One day you will stand face to face with him. And I hope that today that you'll respond to his pursuit because he's pursuing everyone who belongs to him. It's the most magnificent thing about the gospel is that God would not just let us go in our rebellion as enemies of him. He would pursue us. And it happens throughout The story of God's word, it starts in the garden while Adam Adam and Eve are hiding from one another and from God. Who shows up and says, why are you hiding? God does. He comes to them in their hiding. What have you done? He comes and pursues them. And then in this story, when Jonah's running, it's God who sends the storm, who sends the fish, who gives him these agents of deliverance. It's God who pursues him and demonstrates his love for him and that while we were still running and while Jonah's still running, he's pursuing him for his purpose and by his power. And all of the stories in this room, ultimately, if we've responded to the gospel, it's our story too. That while we were still enemies, while we were still uh, 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 children of wrath like the rest of mankind, God in his mercy shows up Rich in mercy, but God who's rich in mercy. That's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. There's so many things and places, so many ships that we found headed in the opposite direction of God's purpose and presence. And God, who was rich in mercy, intervened. 
He didn't let us keep going in that direction. For everyone who's in Christ Jesus, that is the story of our salvation, God's presence pursuing us. If you belong to him, if you're his child, his presence continually pursuing us. Spurgeon used to use this reference for God, the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. It was a a poem written by Francis Thomas. It starts off something like this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated. I down titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. In other words, God's consistently after me continually pointing out all the things that we might pursue instead of his presence and his purpose and showing how they will fall short. They will ultimately leave us disappointed. A couple observations about God's pursuit of Jonah. He came after him while he was still running. God used the circumstances around him to turn him back. It was the call to wake up that even came from sailors. Look, these guys are not even followers of the true and living God, and they're saying, wake up. (laughs) And I hope that some of you are not asleep, literally asleep. I hope you're not asleep. And I also hope that you're not asleep in this place today in need of a wake-up call. But I fear that some of us might be running the opposite direction, and it's that same kind of promise of God's presence pursuing those who belong to him. And some of you know the pursuit. You know that hound of heaven that's pointing out all the things that will betray you as you betray his presence. So I have a couple of statements to conclude today. The first one is this. What is God inviting you into? I want to ask you that question because God is still a God who makes things that he sees known to us. He shows us ways that he's working. Maybe he's showing you a way that in your sin, you need a savior. Maybe he's inviting you to see something in your home, something he wants you to see, something he wants you to know about. And if you spend time with him, he's going to reveal ways that he's working and how he's inviting you to be part of his work. God is still calling, calling us into salvation for those that might trust in him, calling us to participate in his mission, calling us to love our families well, to be obedient to his work. And some of you are wondering, God, what do you want to do with my life? What do you want to do with my life? What's the call for me? And some of you, it's really, really clear, okay? Children in the room, he's already told you what he wants you to do. Honor your parents, okay? It's real clear. It's not mysterious. That's his purpose. He wants you to follow him and love and honor your parents. Parents, He's already called you to love and delight in them, to love in your kids, to not provoke them to anger, but to show them who God is. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. He might call you into a myriad of things, but I promise you he's called you to that. If you're a husband in this room, he's already called you 
That's his call. That's his invitation to participate in what he's accomplishing in your spouse. Wives, honor your husbands. I can promise you of all the things that he's called you to, he's at least called you to that. Christians, love your church. There might be things he's calling you to way across the town or in some other nation, but he's at least called you to that. He's at least called you to that. Christians, love the world as Christ has loved you. There's lots of ways he might call you, but he's at least called you to that. Christians make disciples. There's a way in which he's accomplishing his power and glory and purpose in the world, and he's saying, you get to be part of it. Don't be confused. Come with me as I do these things in the world, whatever it is. I'm saying to you, do not run from him. (laughs) Because however you run, the hound of heaven is going to make all of those attempts doomed to fail. So I want to ask you, how is God inviting you to participate in his work today? If you're running, here's the second thing I want you to know. God is pursuing. God is still a God who pursues rebels. He's still coming after you. He's still reminding you every day of his power and presence. And he's inviting you to not only witness his work, but to be part of it. To be transformed by this gospel. That we would not only hear it, but it would be received by us. That the love he's called us to give to the world, that we'd be first bringing our empty, broken cups to him and saying, Lord, fill me up. All of my insecurities, all of my needs, in all of these places, God, please. So the good, the really, really good news is if you're tired of running, God's welcome is always open to those who would repent and believe. He's always saying, come unto me. If you're weary and you're worn out, take my yoke upon you for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. The gospel is this good news that Jesus is nothing like Jonah. He actually is the hero. He's not the anti-hero. He saw the brokenness of the world and he saw them with compassion. He looked on our needs and our sins and he said, come to me. Jesus said yes to a perfect life, offering his life as a sacrifice in our place for our sins. When he heard the call of God, he did not say, my will be done. He said, thy will be done. And he responded in obedience Thy will be done instead of bitter reluctance. Jesus considered the joy set before him for the sake of those who would come to belief. And for all of you, he took on the cross for for your sake. And so as we hear that gospel proclaimed that Jesus Christ comes and pursues sinners that are reluctant and rebellious and running, I want us to look to him today. Hebrews. Chapter 12, verse 2. In conclusion, for everyone in this room looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We look to Jesus. He's nothing like Jonah. So today, wherever you're at, we turn to him. Trust in him. Come to his presence. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would come alive in our hearts, that it would respond with obedience and faith. In the specific ways that people feel confronted, I pray they would turn to you for your mercy. For those that are walking,
closely, listening to your voice. I pray that they would be so comforted again by this good news. That while we were still sinners, you would suffer in our place and invite us into the greatest story, your story. Pray that you would do things today that, that words alone cannot, they cannot accomplish. This proclamation of who you are and how you work, it doesn't bring people to repentance, but you, you do. So for those that are hardened, that are reluctant to receive this word, I pray that your goodness would just chase after them, that you'd be running after them. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.